Well, stand with me as we rise to read from the Gospel of John this morning. You can turn your Bibles to chapter 15 of John's Gospel as our morning series through this wonderful book continues today. We come to chapter 15, which is, for many of you, no doubt, a much-loved and known passage. It's true that Throughout the New Testament, uh, the apostles most often speak about life in Christ using language of being in Christ. It's something that gives rise to the doctrine of union with Christ that we so often want to revel in and learn about. And This is a passage that doesn't speak so much to a declaration of the doctrine of union and communion with Christ, but a passage that speaks about an experience of that union to which we are called in Christ. So let me read the first 17 verses of chapter 15, and then I'll pray and we will continue on together. So do listen as the Lord speaks to you through his perfect word. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I love you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be complete in you, and your joy full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another." The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we do come to you this morning, knowing that you draw near to us through your word and spirit, and by that testimony that is our heritage forever. And may your gospel be the joy of our heart today as we long to cling to Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. You may be seated. I've had many reasons over recent years to spend lots of time with seminary professors, and there's a certain professor that stands out 
as one that has taught me the most and I suppose in certain ways uh, shaped me the most. He is one of these professors that is prolific and popular enough that often when he comes to the seminary, he gets mic'd up because the seminary leaders, they want to record his teaching so that those in the class that aren't in the class can receive much from the teaching that he does offer. Yet it's those that have been in his classes that know the best part or parts of his classes inevitably are not recorded because he's rather infamous for often turning off his recording device when he's teaching. Because he has this kind of pattern that is not just infamous, but quite beloved in the seminary context where I serve, where he'll be lecturing, he'll be teaching, and you'll see something just kind of race across his face. It's though a thought has entered into his mind. And he'll pause, and if you're quite blessed that day, he'll he'll reach down on his recorder and turn it off. And he'll begin to share something of maybe a more personal nature, or some kind of nature that just doesn't want recorded for all the public to hear. And it's in those moments that students will inevitably, they kind of lean forward because they know they're going to get some uh, peculiar insight, particular help and, and wisdom, knowledge, teaching uh, along the way. And you can't help but leave these courses that this professor gives feeling as though you've been allowed to eavesdrop, as it were, on some sacred thoughts that not everyone gets to hear And the only reason I tell you that is because we we continue to have the privilege in John's gospel where we find ourselves to eavesdrop, as it were, on sacred thoughts from our Savior as he was engaged in his table talk with his disciples there at the upper room. And as we continue to eavesdrop into this wonderful section of Scripture, what we find Jesus doing in the passage this morning is giving us the seventh and final I am statement that has come and will come in the course of John's gospel. So don't ever forget, this is a gospel that's written. The apostle tells us that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing in him, you might have eternal life. And so every story, every scene, every situation, every teaching is there that you would know who Jesus is. And some of the most striking and simple ways that he's disclosed his identity have been through these series of statements that we often speak of as the I am statements. So students, I wonder if you can remember any of the six previous I am statements that Jesus has given in John's gospel. If you go all the way back to chapter 6, you get the first one where he says, I am the bread of life. And then he will soon say, I am the light of the world. Sayings 3 and 4 come in chapter 10 where he says, I am the door, and then he says, I am the good shepherd. Chapter 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And a few weeks ago when we started chapter 14, we saw him say and heard him announce, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the seventh and final, I am saying, if you notice, is what kickstarts our passage there in verse 1. He says, I am the true vine. And just like all the other I am statements that we've looked at so far, it has this rich Old Testament background that we'll soon see. And it's not just the fulfillment that Jesus is going to give to us today as he speaks about himself as the vine and us as the branches. He's going to use that saying to initiate a long passage of Scripture that in every way is concerned with this dominant theme of abiding in Christ. If your Bible is like mine, you can look at the 17 verses in front of you and you'll find that word abide 11 times in 17 verses. It's simply a word that speaks about remaining, 
about staying. It's, it's talking about dwelling. John has used it to this point in his gospel, this word abiding, most often to speak about where Jesus stayed in a particular location. So perhaps most recently, he would have used it back in John chapter 11, where Jesus heard this news that his close friend Lazarus was dying. And if you remember that story, after hearing the report that if Jesus doesn't come, Lazarus is going to die, what did Jesus do? He stayed where he was. He kept abiding where he was. And if you can kind of get that spatial awareness about what this word means, you're going to begin to understand what he's after in the union and communion that he longs to have with his disciples as he calls you to abide in him. So what I want to show you across the way this morning from our 17 verses are four simple ways that Jesus talks about the nature of this abiding. It's a call to abide in him, we'll see first of all, which is the majority of the text really, is is abide fruitfully. And quickly he'll talk about abiding prayerfully and abiding joyfully. And in the last portion of the text, he'll call us to abide relationally. And so we want to see those along the way this morning, and I trust you might agree with me that it seems to be a most fitting text that comes at the very last day of the year of our Lord, 2023, as many of us are looking forward to what the Lord might do in the coming days, weeks, and months of 2024. Uh, Surely it's fresh fellowship that we need in Christ Jesus, even some of you fresh friendship with Christ Jesus, and this is a text that throughout the centuries, have occupied no small number of many a Christian servant's mind as they have longed to experience this union and communion with Christ. Even one I read this week from an old gospel minister said, oh, he wrote this in his journal, oh, that I might abide in the bosom of him who washed Judas's feet, that I might catch the infection of his love, his tenderness, so wonderful, so unfathomable. And I hope that you might likewise have something of that desire, that that catching hope of abiding in Christ's love. And it begins, notice again, that we abide fruitfully. Because he says, I am the true vine. And it's important, kids, that you notice that he says, I am the true vine. He doesn't just say, I am a vine. Evidently, there are other vines that have come that will come, that are perhaps present even in the disciples' life, these sources of life, things that ultimately prove to be false, things that ultimately prove to be fake in their life-giving power. Some scholars throughout the ages have wondered, as Jesus is prone to do in his ministry, you know, he kind of looks out across the way or maybe sees something out in the distance, and he uses what he sees as an opportunity to illustrate a a genuinely important spiritual truth. And so they've wondered if maybe he looked out of the window there in the upper room and saw a vine climbing up. And he said, essentially to the disciples, you see that vine? Well, I'm going to now use that vine and its realities to paint an illustration of spiritual importance. Uh, But much better is understanding how the Old Testament regularly likens Israel, whom in the Old Testament God calls his beloved child, How often the Old Testament likens Israel to a vine. And actually, every time Israel is likened to a vine in the Old Testament, particularly the books of the prophets, it's said to be a faithless and fruitless vine. And the prophets come and they basically sue God's people on behalf of God in the covenant for for breaching the terms of their covenant with God. And not only is it often an indictment of just the bad spiritual state that was there in Israel, it often would come with words of hope 
that they would proclaim that a time is coming when a true vine would arrive. And of course, here is Jesus saying, I am that true vine. I am God's beloved son in whom life can only and always be found. So he's going to continue on with the idea of his identity as a vine in a few verses, but where he goes next, you'll see at the end of verse 1, is speaking about the father's identity as the vine dresser. You know, I think we can say with uh, a holy reverence that God, the Father, has a green thumb when it comes to the garden of his people. He's the gardener constantly caring for the spiritual fruit in his people's life. I mean, you might have someone like that in your neighborhood. Perhaps you're that someone in your neighborhood. Anytime someone walks by, anytime someone drives by, you just see this person outside tending the garden, trimming Pruning, watering, planting, doing everything to, to care for the garden so that it brings forth fruit. And Jesus is saying here is that's the Father's role when it comes to this idea of Christ being the vine and us being the branches. And it's a sobering reality that comes from this initially. Look at verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes Away. Now, Jesus is reminding us here that, of course, a vine, if you know anything about that kind of horticultural world, it has no use beyond the fruit. I mean, some people might plant vines for decorative purposes, but vines exist to what? Bring forth fruit. And he's saying that the vine dresser, if it finds no fruit, is going to cut off the branches that are meat to bring fruit. And such a dangerous reality. Notice verse 6, this belongs even unto eternity. He says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. And Jesus, of course, isn't saying here that someone can lose their salvation. What he's saying here is that there are those branches that appear grafted into the vine that in time, because of their lack of fruit, show that they never were truly joined to the vine. Spiritually speaking, what he is saying is there are countless Christians that profess faith, at least, that eventually prove themselves to be false disciples. Why? Because they don't bear fruit. They only have the most outward and formal relationship with Christ. They appear to be joined to him, but time and circumstance show they're actually not. Ordinarily, in our context, it would work out like this. People that have only the most outward and formal relationship with Christ, they're baptized into church membership, perhaps even their regular communicants at the Lord's Supper, perhaps even they can recite most, if not all, of the catechism, and yet their life bears no genuine spiritual fruit that comes from being truly united to Christ. Time and circumstance eventually prove they're not actually joined to Christ. That's why there is no actual fruit. And it's why Jesus says the Father will cut them off in judgment. And I wonder if you might actually be that kind of a branch, giving off all the appearance of of being joined to Jesus, when in reality your life only proves how fruitless things actually are. 
And what's striking about the way Jesus thinks about this is he's saying that not only is the Father's role as vine dresser one where he cuts off lifeless branches, but interestingly, you'll see in verse 2 at the end, he cuts into living branches. You see how verse 2 ends? Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You know, students, if you can think about it this way, part of the Father's love for his people is that he slices and dices. He trims and cuts. He brings things that hurt to his beloved people's lives. I wonder if you have that kind of doctrine of God that understands his love sometimes slices, sometimes cuts. You know, someone who knew this well was an old pastor, a hymn writer named John Newton. He once wrote a hymn that was titled, I Ask the Lord That I Might Grow, which is a good thing to ask the Lord, isn't it? And so he says in the first verse, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and grace and more earnestly seek my Savior's face. And then he begins to work out in poem and rhyme how in, in light of that prayer, it only seems like hardship increased. He says that the Lord amplified his woes. He blasted his blessings and brought him quite low. And as he's trying to work this out in the hymn, one of the verses reads this, Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Will you pursue your worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. And maybe you know that. Some of the most profoundly spiritual growing times in your life have come through dark providences, frowning providences of God in your life, that he cuts, that hardship comes, that difficulty arrives in order to make you more like Christ. I think it's true, the longer that you live in your life in Christ, it's not so much those sunny days of grace and glory that grow you most. It's those dark nights when you learn you are nothing and everything you need is found only in God. I trust that you might see that your life genuinely can change entirely when you understand that suffering comes for your good. And how much of your life would change if difficulty arrived and you thought, this is meant to make me more like Jesus. When that suffering came, you were able to endure it with hope, knowing that it's making you more like Christ. When that trial arrived, you enter into it expecting that he's going to do good things through it. Because the vine dresser cuts and prunes so that more fruit comes. And surely we're meant to understand that fruit is nothing more than fruit of Christ's likeness because it's not primarily that fruit of witness or service that Jesus is after here that we show forth. He's after those fruits that are so often talked about in the Spirit. Summary fruit even that's found in the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. I mean, I once heard a, a pastor that I love preach on this passage, and he remarked about how this fruit that God brings forth through union with his Son is entirely unremarkable because it's just the fruit of the Spirit. But you might agree with me, at least the older I get, the more remarkable that fruit actually is. When you see genuine fruit of the Spirit arise, it's stunning, isn't it? It's glorious to behold because naturally those things don't come 
from hearts like yours and mine. It's only through the supernatural pruning work of the Father in the Son and by the Spirit that any fruit arrives. And just in case we would potentially fall into a trap of thinking our fruitfulness qualifies us for life in Christ, notice what Jesus says in verse 3. He says, already you are clean. He's using language he actually used back in chapter 13, there when the upper room discourse started. He says, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Uh, That language there of clean is actually in the original language. It's something of a play on words with the word used for pruning. So you could almost kind of think about it in the way Jesus is talking about it, where he says at the end of verse 2, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. The Father does that it might bear more fruit, and already you are pruned, is what he says. Those that he cuts, he does so to bring more fruit. And guess what, guys? You are already cut. You already belong to me. It's not as though our sanctification, our abiding in Christ is what qualifies us to be justified and made righteous before God. No, he says already that has happened. But now because that has happened, abide in me. Which is what he says, look at verse 4 and 5. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And kids, I think this is where the metaphor becomes so simple and so easy to understand. Apart from the vine, no branch can live, right? If you were to go home today with your parents' permission and just lop off a branch from a tree in your front yard or backyard, it's not as though it's going to lie there in the front yard or backyard in the coming days and weeks and continue to thrive in life, is it? It's going to die because it has to be united to the life-giving power. In the same way, if we're to abide in Christ, Jesus Christ himself has to be utterly central in our life because without abiding in Christ, there is no spiritual fruit that can ever come without remaining and staying and dwelling in Him, there is no fruit. I mean, you come across some verses, don't you, in in the Bible, at least I do, and I have this sense that you just kind of want to tattoo them to your soul, you know, write them apart on, on top of your heart because it's just that central. And truly, that is what comes at the end of verse five when he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. It's life-altering when you understand, apart from me, you can do nothing. Principally and contextually, originally here, it relates to growing in the fruit the Father is looking for. But it's no doubt more broad than that, isn't it? Your life, apart from me, nothing. Your relationships, apart from me, nothing. Your service and striving, apart from me, nothing. Your anything, apart from me, he says, nothing. But of course, in me, faith and possessing Christ in the heart means everything. Because he is life, he is all. So we're called to abide in Christ, which means abiding fruitfully. Secondly, it means that we are to abide prayerfully. You'll see that in verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. 
It's important that you see here in verse 7 the connection he makes between the word abiding in your heart and prayer issuing from your heart. It's not surprising by this point in John's gospel that he is, is putting such priority and preeminence on his word dwelling within his people's hearts. Because didn't this gospel begin with the priority and preeminence of what? The word. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. And when each passing story, each passing scene, what we find is Jesus saying, believe in me by believing in this word. Receive me as you receive this word. And so we find people doing is what? Rejecting Christ as they reject the word. Receiving Christ as they receive the word. To dwell in Christ, to abide in Christ, means that you must dwell, you must abide in the word. And this is perhaps the time of year when Christians most acutely think about dwelling and abiding in the word. Maybe you have, you know, ready to go tomorrow, a Bible reading plan for 2024. This, at long last, is going to be the year that you're going to get through the Bible from start to finish in the coming 12 months. Don't put that upon your heart as a yoke too heavy to bear. But it is a good thing, isn't it? That God's people dwell in the word. There's no dwelling in Christ apart from dwelling in the word. There's no abiding in Christ, he says, apart from abiding in his word. And as that word works its way into our heart, he says it's going to issue from our heart with prayer. That's really what he's saying there. And you don't want to treat it, students, as though it's some sort of like genie in the bottle-like prayer reality. Whatever you ask for, It will be done for you. What he's actually saying there is that the person efficient, powerful, effective in prayer is a person whose heart is abiding in the word. How does that work out? The more you abide in Christ is the more you abide in his word. And the more you abide in Christ as you abide in his word means your prayers are dominated by that word of Christ. And what are you asking for? but his will to be done in you, his will to be done through you. And what do you know about God? He loves to answer prayer according to his will, that on earth it would be done as it is in heaven. One old pastor even commenting on this text, he said, is it no wonder that there's so little prayer in our time because there's so little communion with Christ through his word in our time? You know, when you go to churches and you don't find prayer meetings, or you go to churches that have a prayer meeting and no one shows up, maybe it is nothing more than people just don't know how to dwell in Christ through his word that issues in words of petition, intercession, supplication, and thanksgiving and powerful abiding prayer. So he says, abide fruitfully, prayerfully. Next, he says, joyfully. You see how the text continues. By this, verse 8, my Father is glorified. This kind of word-centered, abiding, prayerful fruit that you might bear fruit and prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. And here's the joy. Notice in verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So that's the ground of the joy he's getting ready to talk about in, in verse 11. And he's telling us again something he mentioned just recently in the Upper Room Discourse, the Christian life. It's a little more, isn't it, than this communion of love. The greatest proof of our genuine discipleship, the greatest proof of our love, is that we obey him. Those that have received 
the love of Christ, they respond with love to Christ in their obedience. And you'll see the purpose of all of it, verse 11, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. And now, students, pay attention to the progress of the pronouns in verse 11. You see that? I have said these things, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. In other words, I've said these things so that my joy becomes your joy. Now, in context, if you glance up to the preceding verses, what is Jesus' joy? But reveling in the Father's love. What, therefore, is his people's greatest joy? But reveling in the Father's love. That that joy would be full, that that joy would be complete, that that joy would be perfect and all satisfying. In the late 19th century, there was this group of men in America in the Gilded Age, as historians call it, that were kind of nicknamed robber barons. They were the incredibly wealthy men, wealthiest really in many ways in the entire world outside of a few monarchs at that time. And one of the robber barons there in the late 19th century was a man named Jay Gold. He died in 1892. He died possessing what every single American would have said was necessary to have joy in life. And yet he's reported to have said from his deathbed, quote, I am the most miserable man on earth because he had not Jesus, who is our joy. I trust that you know that power, possessions, prestige, pleasures, in this world, don't actually bring joy. There's no fullness of joy outside of Jesus. There's no fullness of joy outside of abiding in Jesus. The fullness of joy that we found in Jesus is that love of the Father for sinners like you and me. Sinners that are actually counted as Christ's friends. And that's where the rest of the text goes. Because The fourth and final thing I want you to see is that we're called to abide relationally. Look at verse 12 through 14. This is my commandment, he says, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Two years ago, the Survey Center for American Life it released new research related to friendship in our nation. Perhaps it wouldn't surprise you to hear this center say that Americans now more than ever report fewer friends, fewer conversations with friends, fewer times to rely on friends because they just don't have very many friends. Just even this year, in this calendar year in America, outlets like CNN and NPR and even our government's Department of Health and Human Services have declared what they called, quote, an epidemic of loneliness in the land. That increasingly, no small number of Americans, they have no friends, genuine friends. Maybe that's you. I do know that this is a wonderful reason for Christians like you and me to be excited about the prospects of the gospel in our own community because we have a gospel about a friend of sinners. Someone who draws near 
in his life-giving, sacrificial, atoning death that he might take sinful enemies of God and turn them into friends of God. Because isn't that exactly what he's just said? He said, greater love has never been seen than this that someone would lay down his life for his friends. Now, in the ancient Greco-Roman culture of Jesus' day, friendship was much extolled, it was much celebrated. It was much pursued and prized. And not only would you seek to have good friends, you'd seek to be a good friend. And the ultimate display of your friendship was your willingness to sacrifice for your friends, knowing that sometimes such sacrifice might even mean death. Jesus is evidently kind of pulling on this idea that was common in his time, but understand really how different it was because we know from the scriptures that he goes to the cross dying for sinners. While we were still yet enemies of God, he died for us, the gospel declares. And it's that death for sinners in their place that turns them in to friends of God as they are welcomed into his family. And you'll see as the text continues, he speaks about that kind of shift in the identity. Verse 15, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. It was common at that time, you would have servants, you would have slaves in the home and a master of a house would never kind of let the servant on, on the inside of his thought as to why he would issue a command or why he would give a word. It simply was the master stated the command, the master gave the word, and the servant just went off and obeyed. But friends were on the inside. They were, they were confidants of the master. They knew his mind. They understood his heart. They knew the why behind the word. And Jesus is saying to these disciples, no longer are you slaves. You are friends. And again, if you don't understand the Old Testament background, it may not strike you as stunningly as it would have struck those disciples. Because kids, there's someone in the Old Testament, only one person in fact, that the Old Testament scriptures say is a friend of God. Do you know who that is? Father Abraham, a friend of God. Are these men that have grown up in that Jewish culture, reveling in the patriarch named Abraham, he was a friend of God, now comes Jesus and say, guess what? You are now my friends. You too are friends of God. And why is it? It's only sovereign grace. Look at verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Abide relationally. He says, with me, be my friends. I've chosen you in sovereign grace and supplied the mercy that you so desperately need in the sacrificial death on the cross. And that kind of love, of course, he says, is to be the relational reality towards other Christians. You see the summary end of it all, verse 17. These things I command you so that you will love one another. The proof of our love for Christ is seen in our obedience to his commands. Our friendship with God. Our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. A simple command that belongs to union and communion with Christ is abide in Him. Abide in Him fruitfully. Showing forth those graces that are only found in Him. He is the life-giving power. Abide prayerfully. 
praying for those things with the word dwelling in your heart that God desires to bring about in your life. Abide joyfully and knowing that in Jesus, all joy, all satisfying joy is found and abide relationally as friends of God who have loving friendship with those in the church. That's what he's saying it means to abide in Christ. So let me close by just simply giving you the simple exhortation that no doubt this text means to bring to you at the most profound and basic and eternal level this morning. A simple exhortation is, you must be found in Christ. Prepositions are really important in the Bible. You can be outside or you can be inside. You can be outside of joy or you can be inside joy. You can be outside of the fruit-giving power or you can be inside the life-giving power. You can be outside of Christ or you can be inside of Christ. And kids, you might even think about it in this way. Perhaps you can picture a person drowning at sea. They see a lifeboat off in the distance. You know, don't you, children, that no one is saved by staring at the lifeboat, gazing at the lifeboat. You have to get into the lifeboat. Yes, you must stare, you must stop, you must gaze at Jesus Christ this morning, but you must get into him. Through faith and repentance. Abiding in Christ is the most wonderful thing in the world, isn't it? That same professor that I've heard for so many years turn off his microphone when he wanted to say things of perhaps unusual and spiritual importance. Uh, one day he did say something that was recorded. And he talked about this time in his life when, as a, as a teenage boy, he went home skipping from church. Now we have children that run through the hallways. Some of you race through the hallways. I don't know if I've ever seen in my near six plus years being here, someone skipping through the hallways. But maybe you might go skipping home today. Because as he told this story, he talked about his time when he left his church. And I think he was probably a young high school student at the time. And the, the preacher had been declaring the good news of the gospel in, in Jesus Christ. And it hit him with such a reality that he was walking the few blocks back to his house. And as he turned the corner down a street where no one was watching, he began to skip. Because he said, because he, said he couldn't just contain the joy that was in his heart. The joy that was in his heart was the good news that he had just learned that those who are in Christ are saints. Well, let's turn that a little bit in light of this text. You might not go skipping physically and literally from here. I do hope your heart might skip a beat in its joy-filled delight when knowing that you can leave this room today being found in Christ. You can leave this day being found a friend of Christ who is fruitful through abiding in Him. And friends, I trust that that is the greatest news that you can hear this day. News that you can be found abiding in the Savior. May you be found doing that. Let's pray together. Lord, we do ask that Christ would dwell in our hearts by faith. Through his Spirit the application of this word unto us. Lord, keep us from dwelling, from abiding in the things of earth and dust that do not last, but to give us a home within our Savior who lives within us that we might live in Him, 
fruitfully unto your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we respond to God's word and sing our hymn of response printed there in your book.